All right, guys, let's turn our attention to the scriptures. If you have your Bible, uh, find the book of First Thessalonians. New Testament book of First Thessalonians. Not familiar where that is? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians. When you find that book, find chapter four. Tonight we're coming to the last statement in the Apostles' Creed concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. Um, like I laid out last week, I'll do again tonight, we've already covered in the life and work of Jesus, His incarnation. Every aspect of what I'm about to say is He did for us and for our salvation. Not just what happened at the end of His life, but the incarnation itself. His suffering, His crucifixion, His descent to the dead. His resurrection from the dead, his ascent to the right hand of the Father, which we talked about last week. Um, and then tonight, we're going to talk about his second coming, uh, the return of Christ. As the creed actually words it, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Or if you grew up in a church that confessed the creed in its older form, the quick and the dead. Um, nobody knows what that means anymore, so it's living. Um, the passage we're going to begin with tonight, then thinking about this, is one of the classic texts in the New Testament about, about the second coming of Jesus. And I did consider, we've got to begin somewhere, and I did consider beginning with the same passage that we began with last week from Acts chapter 1 when we talked about Christ's ascent to the right hand of the Father. Because remember what that passage in Acts 1 actually says, verses 9 to 11, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, which is why we used the passage last week, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And so we could have started there. And right there in that same text, testifying of his, uh, his ascent into heaven, we have the affirmation that he was going to come again. And not just that he's going to come again, but according to that text, he's going to come again in the same way that he went, which means he's going to come certainly, because he certainly went, so he's certainly going to come. He went bodily, visibly, triumphantly. He'll come in all those ways. But much, a much more expansive description of, of that coming event is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 from the, the pen of Apostle, the Apostle Paul. So if you found that place in your Bible, I want you to follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 13 and read through verse 18. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have already died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that, Je that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For the this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, 
with the sound of a trumpet, of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We don't say those rotely. Um, this is your inspired word. Just like 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all scripture is breathed out by God. And 2 Peter 1.21 says, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's your inspired word, and because it is your inspired word, it is therefore inerrant. Because it is precisely what you chose to reveal to us, it is sufficient for our life and godliness to, uh, to meet any decision we have to make here, to know Christ and to live with you forever. All that we need to know for all of those things, sufficiently found in its pages. Clear, because you revealed these things to us so that we could understand them. Authoritative, because it's your word. And necessary, for without it we don't know you. And so I pray that as we come to this word and look at this passage and many other passages, you would give us eyes to see the truth, minds to understand it, hearts to care and to embrace the truth, love it, wills to obey, whatever it, it calls us to, to do and to heed. Give us all ears to hear, I pray, and give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I said last week about the ascension of Christ that except, except for the descent, I think Jesus' descent to the dead is the most neglected doctrine of all of the things that we're going to think about. Most people are like, I've never heard of that. But aside from the descent, I think his ascension is, is, is next in line to things we, yeah, we know it happened, but we've thought, we don't talk about it much. And we haven't really thought about his, how significant is his ascension. We talked about that last week. Um, I think except for that, uh, I think the same thing kind of thing can be said about the second coming. Not because, I mean, most believers can't say that they're completely unfamiliar with the doctrine of the second coming. I mean, like, you know, we know about it, and, and it's certainly not one that's scarcely mentioned like his ascension and certainly not like his descent, but I can also say with a fair bit of confidence, because I find it to be true often in my own life, that it's not, it's not always a doctrine that, that, that occupies our minds and occupies our imaginations as we just go through our days, that Jesus Christ could split the clouds today. He could come, and um, you know, that was not always the case. When you read the scriptures, it's pretty clear that the early church had a very present expectation that the Lord would return. And in their minds, he would return soon. I think if you read the New Testament, they had, a, they had every expectation that the Lord might return in their own lifetimes. And they looked for it, and they took comfort in it. Sometimes, sometimes I think... 
professing Christians today, for, for whatever reason, when we think about the return of Christ, it kind of gives us the creeps. I don't know. Like, I, am I ready for that? But Christians of the first century, it was a greatly comforting doctrine to them to know that the Lord Jesus, and maybe it's because they spent so much time with him, <laughs> that he's going to come back. I mean, think about the book of Revelation. Uh, some people are intimidated by the book of Revelation because, let's be honest, it can be quite a challenge to understand all the wild, crazy imagery in it. But for, for many who do give attention to the book of Revelation, they, they talk about it as if it's a book entirely about the future, future things. And to be fair, it does have a fair bit about the future to say in it. The return of Christ being front and center of example of that. But one thing that's often overlooked about the book of Revelation, when people think about it, is that it was a book that John wrote with the present day church in mind in his day. Like he wrote Revelation not to be, what good would it do them if it was all about stuff that's going to happen thousands of years from now? It's, it's, about a, it's a present day book with, a, with an outlook on the future, what's coming, right? And it was, it was, it was a, a book of a sobering description about the present and the events to come in the future. They are presented, but it's, they're presented, the return of Christ is presented to comfort the church, presented to, to encourage them to persevere through hardship and difficulty and persecution because, hang on, he's coming back. The Lord says himself at the very end, at the very end of the book, I mean, the, the last words of of the Bible are, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Right? Um, the same thing, I think, should still be true of us today, that we, that this, this is something that occupies our minds daily as much as any other Christian truth does, that the Lord, the Lord could come today. Um, one of my favorite theological writers, Anthony Hookham, I'm in this groove of recommending books to you. I don't know when I'll get off this train. Uh, the Bible and the Future by Anthony. It looks like Hokama. It's Hookama. The Bible and the Future. I'm going to read you a little passage from that a little bit later. But he said, he described in that, in that book right there, he described the early church as having, as he put it, a lively expectation of Christ's return. Here's what he said in that whole sentence. This same lively expectation of Christ's return should mark the church of Jesus Christ today. If this expectation is no longer present, there is something radically wrong. That's what he says. So, to try to avoid that being said of us, I want to I just for a few minutes think about the biblical doctrine that, um, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has, has confessed since the days of the apostles that we read about in Scripture that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And uh, there is a lot that we could say. I don't think anything I'm going to say really tonight, maybe it I don't, I, could be that there's nothing that I say tonight that you've never heard before, and that's fine with me. You know, um, this is an old faith that we profess to believe. So if I'm saying new stuff, I'm doing something wrong. Um, but there's so much we could say when we talk about the, the, the return of Christ, because the return of Christ is connected to so many other truths that we also believe and confess in the Apostles' Creed. We just sang it in the song, um, that song about the Apostles' Creed we just sang. I don't know what it's called, but um, 
it talked about the resurrection when Christ comes again. So the resurrection is something that happens. But we're going to save some of those things for later in, in the series when we talk about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But both of those things, I think, commence at the second coming. So there's going to be some things that we could talk about tonight that, that we'll wait for that time. Still plenty for us to think about. And again, we'll look at several scripture passages. Uh, so we won't just camp out on this one from 1 Thessalonians 4. We will come back to it. So here, if you're taking notes, i got two, two basic um, points or divisions or whatever you want to call it. First, I want to think about this doctrine. The first point is this, their expectation of his coming, T-H-E-I-R. Their expectation of his coming. And I'm wording it that very way very precisely for a reason. Their expectation of his coming. Throughout the Bible, what does the Bible say about the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah? And did it always anticipate a second coming? That's kind of where I'm wanting to go with this. Their expectation of his coming. And then second, I want us to think about our expectation of his coming. What should we expect when he comes again? Again, we'll consider several different passages as we think through these, these questions. We'll try to say a few things about each, have a decent grasp of what we confess when we confess this line of the creed, knowing it's deeply biblical. So let's take a second think first about their expectation of his coming. What do I mean by that? Who are the they that I'm talking about when I say their expectation? I'm talking about those living in the time of the Old and New Testaments. Those living in biblical times when the Bible itself was, itself was still being written. Um, how did, especially in the Old Testament, how did they, but also in the Gospels, how did they conceive of what would happen when the Messiah came? You don't have to be around here in the, our college ministry for very long, right now at least, since we're studying through John's gospel on Sunday mornings and we're studying through this on Wednesday nights, uh, to have a pretty good understanding, you hear me say it a lot right now, that the Old Testament has a pretty strong anticipation kind of vibe to it that the Messiah would come and he, there's all these promises that he would bring about, new covenant and all of that. And, and if you read the prophets carefully, you find that they expected a lot of things to happen when the Messiah came. Um, though they thought both in terms of not just salvation, but also judgment. They thought in the Old Testament that when on the day that the Messiah came, he would not only bring with him salvation, but he would also bring with him judgment. Um, and they would often include these two things side by side, right? As if they, they understood that these two things were going to happen at the same time when the Messiah came. Often described as the day of the Lord. That's, that's, that's the phrase you see in the Old Testament. Let me just think about some examples of this. Take your Bible and flip over to Isaiah chapter 2. I won't have you turn to all these, but just to give you something to do I'll ask you to turn to a couple of them Isaiah chapter 2 and we're going to just take a glance at this whole chapter just to see show you what I'm talking about so like when you get there Isaiah chapter 2 look with me um, at verses 1 to 5 first 
the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days. What's coming to pass in the latter days? This day coming in the latter days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. This is a prophecy about Jesus. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Do you see what's going on right there? That right there, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That is language about, like, heaven. But they go, he goes in the same breath from talking about, about basically Jesus coming and, and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in it. That he's the word that's flowing out of Jerusalem. He's basically combining the first and the second coming of Jesus all in one breath. And then look at what the, the, the rest of the chapter uh, talks about. Beginning, Let's just skip down a little bit. And like uh, verse 12 through the end of the chapter, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. It goes on and on and on and on. Verse 20, In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns and the rocks and the clefts of the hills from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? All that's supposed to happen same time. You've got on this day in the latter days, that's this prophetic vision, on this day of the Lord, in, in the latter days, salvation's coming, and with him is also coming judgment. That's, that's just, um, when, you know, when, when Messiah comes, he will bring salvation to his people and terrifying judgment to those who have rejected him. And that's, they called it the day of the Lord, or, or you don't have to turn to it, but think about the ending of the prophet Joel. All right, you should read the prophet, the, the minor prophets. Read the, read the little guys. They're good, man. Joel, throughout Joel's prophecy, he's, he's talking about this coming day. I mean, the whole thing is about it, this coming day when the Messiah would come. Here's how it ends. On, on the one hand, he says on this coming day, this is Joel 3, 14 and 15, on, on, on this day, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. That's cosmic judgment language. The day of the Lord when the Messiah comes sounds like a catastrophic day at the end of the world. Sun and moon darkened. Judgment. The day of decision. But on the other hand, three verses later, three verses later, 
in 3.18, And in that day the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. On that day, both. Judgment for some, salvation dripping with sweet wine for others. You see the same pattern again and again and again in the prophets. We don't have time to go there. But in Amos, you see it. Obadiah, you see it. Zephaniah, you see it. Zechariah and Malachi all have that pattern in their prophecies. Looking forward to this one day when all the promises of God would come to pass, promises to judge the nations, promises to save his people. It's all going to happen when, on the day of the Lord when he comes. Both will take, a, they take place on at the same time. So that on the one hand, Zephaniah, for example, can assure the faithful people of God, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Forgiveness on that day for you. But on the other hand, Amos can warn unbelieving nations, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why should you... Why, should, why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. That's Amos. That's what the prophets expected. This day coming when Messiah came, judgment and salvation. His, enemy, his people saved, his enemies judged. But then Jesus comes. Then Jesus comes. And he makes everybody rethink how they understood the prophets. Um, well, let me show you how, how did he do that. Let me show you what I think might be the clearest example. So we're going to turn again, turn back to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Yeah, Jesus didn't seem to be doing what they expected the Messiah to do. So in Luke chapter 4, we have Jesus going to his hometown of Nazareth and, and going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so let's start reading in verse 16. I'll read through verse 21. Luke 4, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he, he's going to read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is a messianic passage, by the way. This is, a prophet, this is a prophecy about the Messiah to come. He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to teach them, saying, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If he had a mic to drop, he would have dropped it. Um, now, something really interesting happens in what he did there. 
even though it's not specifically pointed out what exactly he did, because the larger point of this narrative, by the way, is that after he did that, the people in his hometown got offended at him. Don't we know his mother and his brother? And they, just, they didn't believe. Um, that's the main point. But the interesting thing that he did here is how he quotes that Old Testament passage from Isaiah chapter 61. The, the Jews, as you can imagine, in that day were very, very familiar with their Bibles and especially important passages like this one. It's like even if no a lot of people don't know anything about the Bible, they know John 3.16, right? Or they know the, the most well-known verse in the Bible. You know, it's like even if the Jews didn't know the whole Old Testament, they would at least be familiar with like the most important ones, like these messianic prophecies who we're looking out for, right? And they would have been very familiar with that passage from Isaiah chapter 61. And I have no doubt in my mind that somebody in that synagogue that day might have thought it was curious where Jesus stopped reading, where he stopped quoting when he stood up to read that passage because he stopped in the middle of a sentence. He stopped in the middle of the sentence and then he rolled it up and sat down saying it was fulfilled in their hearing. Jesus stopped in the line that says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Period. Sit down. What's the rest of the verse that he left out, though? Here's how, it, here's how that verse actually reads in Isaiah 61.2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. Do you see why they might have scratched their heads on that day? That's what they would have anticipated coming. It was almost like if I said amazing grace, and you're thinking how sweet the sound, but I never say it. I just go sit down. You know what I'm saying? They proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and they're thinking in the day of vengeance of our God, but he never says it. He sits down. Isaiah, the prophet, he looked ahead and he saw the year of the Lord's favor commencing on the same day as the day of the vengeance of our God. Favor for the people of God, vengeance for the enemies of God. He saw it happening on the same day. This is what we sometimes call the prophetic perspective. The prophetic perspective. What, is, what does that mean? The perspective with which the prophet saw things. If you can imagine just a, an, an image that's always helped me in my mind, think about the way the prophets often saw things playing out. It's like, it's like you're standing at the foothill of a mountain and you're looking up at what is a series of mountain peaks. You know, increasingly higher mountain peaks. You're looking up at it and you've got this peak and that peak and that peak, and it's like they get progressively higher, and all you see are the peaks. You can't see the miles that are between the peaks. To you, it looks like one mountain. It looks like one hill with a lot of peaks. You don't know that there's miles between each peak. And so that's exactly how it happens with the prophets seeing all these things, and to them, it looks like one mountain. It looks like one day. 
It looks like a single event comprising both salvation of his people, judgment of his enemies. It's just that that day when it actually gets here, it's broken up into two stages with miles between them. Uh, and think about the, the, the grace and the mercy that's present in that. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. His judgment will come swiftly, but his mercy lingers for a while. But their expectation that all of these things would happen at once was a strong expectation, even when you come to the New Testament. John the Baptist, Jesus' own disciples. Famously, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist had already been arrested and was in jail because of his testimony for Jesus. Think about this crisis of faith that John the Baptist had. He had already said, this is, the, this is the Messiah, this is the Lamb of God, and he got arrested for it. He's in jail for it, and he starts having doubts. He sends messengers from jail to ask Jesus in Matthew eleven three, 3, are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John the Baptist they thought at the very least when, when the Messiah came, he would judge those who ruled over Israel, in that case the Romans, but they're still here and I'm in jail. And they, they thought this Messiah would rule righteously over Israel and, and all that. It's, why, it's also why Jesus' own disciples, even after the resurrection, right before the ascension in that Acts 1 passage, remember right before uh, we read it, Earlier, but Jesus' disciples, after the resurrection, right before the ascension, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't get it. What Jesus made absolutely clear was that his first coming signaled the year of the Lord's favor. And there would be a day coming when after he left, he would return and bring about the final salvation of God's people, but also the judgment, not just of Israel's earthly enemies, but all of the enemies of God. Jesus made both of these things clear in Matthew 25, 31 and following. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on his left, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So their expectation of his coming changed with the coming of Jesus. Uh, instead of having the restoring the kingdom to Israel, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And instead of judging the nations now, he came first to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the certainty, the certainty of the judgment is coming when he comes again. Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That day is coming. That was, that's how their expectation of his coming changed. They thought it was going to happen all at once. 
They realized it was going to happen in two stages, and when he left, they couldn't wait for him to come back. But what about our expectation of his coming? The Apostle Peter said it well when he said in 2 Peter 3.10 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And he followed that up with a question. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, this is 2 Peter 3.11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? When Peter talks about this, and, he, and he, he thinks soberly about the second coming of Jesus, even though he, he can look forward to that day, he tells, he tells his people, what sort of people ought we to be in the meantime? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was simply the inauguration of the day of the Lord. The consummation of that day will come when he comes again. And so Peter says, what sort of people ought we to be in the meantime? The testimony of Scripture repeatedly is that Jesus is coming soon. And some might scoff at that and point out that it has been quite some time already. Somebody might say, I would not call two millennia soon. Not realizing, as the Scripture says, that when the Scripture says soon, it carries also the sense of imminent. It's imminent. That's why the, the, the scriptures say things like in Philippians 4, 5, the day of the Lord is at, it's at hand. It is near. It is near. It's at hand. It could happen at any moment. Some people, have this, some people have this view of biblical prophecy that seems to lead to this conclusion that, well, this, this thing must happen or this or that must happen before the Lord comes back. What? No. That flies in the face of repeated statements in the New Testament Scriptures flatly to the contrary. And Scripture says that when He comes, like we saw in Matthew 25, He will bring judgment to unbelievers. But Scripture also says that believers, we as believers, will also give an account to Him for our lives. What sort of people ought you to be? Peter asked. Romans 14, 12. So then each, each one of us will give an account of himself to God on that day. Are we then to fear? Are we then to fear that day? It should strike some measure of fear into our hearts, I would think. I mean, yeah. I mean, when people saw angels... In the Bible. What are, what's the most common words of an angel in the Bible? First words, don't be afraid. That's an angel. Imagine the Lord God. I imagine it will be just a, a little bit scary. But it's not a fear of condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. So still, what does this mean that we, have, we will have to give an account to him of our lives? Let me read you this passage from Anthony Hookema. 
It is sometimes said that the sins of believers, which God has pardoned, blotted out, and cast into the sea of forgetfulness, will not be mentioned on the day of judgment. If it be true, however, that there is nothing hidden which will not then be revealed, and that the judgment will concern itself with all our deeds, words, and thoughts, surely the sins of believers will also be revealed on that day. In fact, if it is true that even the best works of believers are polluted with sin, how can any deeds of believers be brought into the open without some recognition of sin and imperfection? Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 that some believers build on the foundations of faith in Christ with inferior metals and materials like wood, hay, and stubble. These will, these will be saved, but yet will suffer loss. The failures and shortcomings of such believers, therefore, will enter in, into the picture of the day of judgment. But, and this is the important point, he says, the sins and shortcomings of believers will be revealed in the judgment as forgiven sins, whose guilt has been totally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as, we, as was said, believers have nothing to fear from the judgment, though the realization that they will have to give an account of everything they have done, said, and thought should be for them a constant incentive to diligent fighting against sin conscientious Christian service, and consecrated living. That's what he says. I recommend that book to you. But let's end where we started. We read that passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, describing the return of Christ at the sound of cry of command at the sound of the trumpet of God and the voice of an archangel. Interestingly, remember we talked about all of these, all the works of God for us and for our salvation are connected. That that week we talked about his descent to the dead, those who have already died, and they're all like, that's weird. But he did. And notice I love that how how when it talks about Jesus coming again, it describes Jesus as coming with his saints for his saints. You know, notice it says in verse 14, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Notice, notice also in chapter 3, uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, Grandma and Grandpa in the Lord, who died in the Lord, they're coming with Jesus as Jesus is coming for you. That's awesome, right? And we will be caught up together with him. And what are Paul's final words in this passage? Therefore, encourage one another with these words we're robbing ourselves blind of joy if we don't ever talk about this and we don't wake up and think at some point in the day the lord jesus might come back today and it's a good thing let's pray and i'm going to invite the band to go up come up here while i pray father thank you so much for
this word. Um, thank you that. Thank you that you did. Yeah, just thank you that you didn't just accomplish our salvation in 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 some uh, past time, but you you not only accomplished our salvation in past time, but you have some future work still for us to look forward to. And uh, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight who heard this and they they know that they have have never trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord, that, that Lord, tonight would be the night that they acknowledge that they are sinners and their sins separate them from you. But that the promise of Scripture is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that Jesus himself said, all who come to me I will never cast out. I will raise them up on the last day. That if someone needs to profess their faith in Jesus Christ tonight, that they would do that and talk to, talk to somebody that's sitting beside them or come talk to me. I pray for everyone here who is already a believer. That we would not be like Demas, who was a missionary companion of Paul, but who in Paul's later life, Paul would say about Demas that, Demas had deserted him and did done so because he fell in love with this present world. I pray that we would not fall in love with this present world, but fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, descended to the dead, rose again from the dead, ascended to the Father's right hand, and is one day going to come on the clouds with great power and glory. Help us to look forward to that day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.